So uh, like I mentioned before, we're starting a new series, not a new series, a new season um, of small groups, and we're going to return to our main study. We, we, we've been studying, thank you, Andy. We've been studying the book of Romans for quite some time. We first started in this book, I want to say right after we opened up again um, from the pandemic. So I think this was like February 2021. Um, and we are going to be finishing it in the near future. Um, we believe that the steady exposition going verse by verse, passage by passage, is the way in which God has prescribed for his people to grow as we're nourished and built up by his word. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We uh, seek to study the scriptures because in it we see Christ, who is the linchpin of the Christian life. And so let's pray before we get going, and then we can begin. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as poor and needy beggars, and we are so delighted to know that you are generous, kind, wise, and a giver, one who has given his son and one who is given all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. And so I pray that this time would not be rote or routine, but you would pierce our hearts and undo us, that we might behold Christ and be fashioned and formed into his image. I pray for those who do not know you, that today might be a day of salvation in which your word lays hold upon their hearts and calls them out of darkness into the light, bringing them alive, Lord. I pray for those that do know you, that your word would sustain us, that we would marvel at the richness of scripture because it is a window to seeing your son, to be mesmerized and captivated by his infinite worth and glory, his splendor, majesty, and at the same time, his compassion, his tenderness towards us, his children. And so, Lord, we pray that we be eager now to receive your word, to be changed and transformed by it, to understand that as believers, we're not only saved, but now sent, that the gospel defines who we are. We ask for your help now as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I mentioned before, things are settling down with summer over and the fall season upon us. Uh, most vacations are on pause until the holidays come around. My family was able to squeeze in one last trip to Seattle about a month ago. And I'll confess from the get-go, Seattle's not my favorite place. If you're from Seattle, I'm sorry. Uh, it's just not high on my list. I've been there before. But my wife, Barry, she rebuked me and reminded me that we were mainly going up traveling to attend a friend's wedding. So we tacked on a couple days before and after that wedding date to kind of turn it into a mini vacation. But when we were planning, and when we finally arrived in Seattle, knowing the purpose behind that trip greatly impacted the itinerary. It's not like we were going to go hit up Chick-fil-A or run some errands at Target. If my kids asked any of those things in fatherly love and wisdom, I would ignore them right? You would too. No, we're on mission. We had to eat at the local hotspots like Un Bien and try out their famous Cuban sandwich. We had to scour Pike's Place 
and seize the opportunity to appreciate and hike the beautiful Pacific Northwest. At least that's what my wife forced me to do. And we certainly, we certainly couldn't leave our plans for Saturday night open-ended. That was reserved for our friend's wedding. You see, the limited time, the unique occasion, the purpose of the trip shaped what we did on the trip. Being on mission has a refining, crystallizing effect. The mission dictates what you do. If you're on mission to explore a new city, it will dictate where you eat, what sites you visit. If you're on mission to land a job, it'll dictate how you spend your mornings brushing up the resume, the afternoons talking to the recruiters. If you're on mission to buy a house, it will dictate your budget, what you buy, when you save. And the same principle holds true for the Christian life. Because the Bible teaches us when we become followers of Christ, we receive new marching orders. We are saved and then deployed with a new mission, the Great Commission, that every single one of us, if we are a Christian, we are to be about the business of making disciples. And this dovetails nicely with our summer series on serving. But don't worry, you know, I'm not going to beat the same drum to get you to serve, but understand Serving is expected. Serving is the norm because it falls under the larger category of living as a Christian, of being on mission as a minister. And that's what we're going to see tonight from our passage in Romans. So if you haven't already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans 15. Romans 15. Tonight we'll be studying verses 14 to 21. Follow along as I read our text for us. Romans 15, beginning in verse 14. This is the word of God. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed by the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard Will understand. Now, it's been a few months since we were in the book of Romans, so a recap is in order. The main thesis 
of Paul's magnum opus is spelled out for us in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. There he writes, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And for 16 chapters, the apostle Paul takes up this topic, reveling and elaborating on this glorious truth. In chapters one to 11, he deals with how the righteous shall live by faith on a vertical level, personally. You could say the focus is on our relationship with God. In chapters 12 to the end, 16, Paul deals, how the, with, deals with how the righteous shall live by faith on a horizontal level, collectively, corporately. The focus is on our relationship with one another. And here in chapter 15, as Paul winds down his letter, he gets very personal. He bears his soul before the Romans, confessing his affection for the church as well as his own ambition for Jesus Christ. Paul is driven by the gospel. He is a man on mission. And in revealing his heart, he intends to warm our hearts to jump in, to join him and participate. From our passage tonight, we will glean three lessons about Christian ministry how the righteous indeed live by faith on mission for the glory of God. First, we'll examine the measure of ministry, the measure of ministry, if you're taking notes. Look again at verse 14. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. Why? That you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Let me begin by asking, how would you define success in ministry? Think about that. In your own opinion, in your own words, what does it look like for Praxis, for Lighthouse, or any other church to be thriving, to be growing and excelling? Is it numbers and the amount of people that show up regularly? Is it the quality and quantity of events and service opportunities in a church? Maybe how fluent the people are in Christian lingo and literature, how informed and up-to-date they are on the latest controversies or conversations circulating in the church. Now, these metrics, they can be helpful, even part of how we evaluate the health of a ministry. But for the apostle Paul, he starts elsewhere. The bar he looks at is much higher, says goodness. This is as general as you can get. Because if goodness is missing, then who cares about these secondary matters and the specifics? What's the point of excellent preaching programs, packed rooms, and theology classes if there's nothing to show for it? If our lives aren't changed. Paul commends the Romans because they are a congregation marked by goodness. They have that kind of reputation. 
Now we do need to clarify what goodness means because the world has a very different definition. The world's standard is what's socially acceptable by the majority. Their foundation is man and what he deems as right. But as Christians, our standard is the scriptures. Our foundation is not ourselves, but God and what he has declared through his inerrant authoritative word. Put simply then, according to the Bible, goodness is right living from right believing. It's orthopraxy, where we get our name as a fellowship group, praxis, correct practice produced by orthodoxy, correct doctrine. The righteous shall live by faith, by faith in God's word, and then we live that faith out, exhibiting it in good godliness, in our behavior, conduct before others, how we handle our finances, our words, our time, what we value and pursue in this life. More details are given to us at the end of verse 14. Goodness is not some vague notion, impression, or feeling. It is informed by truth. The Romans are packed with knowledge and then able to apply in life, proven in their ability to instruct one another. And that's usually the progression of proficiency, right? Whether it's knitting, soccer, or faith. First, you know something. Then you practice something. And then you teach others to do the same. So knowledge flowing in, therefore, is basic. It's essential. Now, I know sometimes we can wax so eloquent on living out our faith that we breeze too hastily past doctrine and truth. Yes, we know we're familiar with that firm warning from the book of James. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. But did you pick up on what anchors both commands? The word. Hearing and doing are necessary because the word is necessary. There's no skirting around this because, beloved, this is the starting line. Knowledge flowing in. So ask yourself, Praxis, are you a student of Scripture? Do you make it your aim to know your Bible, to be filled with all knowledge? Because that's the metric, but that's the metric Paul utilizes to measure biblical, successful ministry. Here's the cold hard truth. You can't make known what you don't know. You can't give what you don't have. A sponge only works if it's first soaked with water. And ministry as nice as it may look, it is merely a shell if we gather as Christians, but we lack Christ, if we lack his word. Now I'm grateful, I'm glad there are a ton of opportunities within Praxis, our fellowship group, to rub shoulders with one another. You, know, you guys have pickleball and climbing groups. You guys arrange dinner parties, escape rooms, and Broadway shows. There are even meetups to discuss Christian books. And these are all great. These are all blessings. But the goal isn't sheerly to hang out, right? No, these get-togethers are the context 
in which true ministry is supposed to happen. When you share life so that you can share Christ, knowledge of him. At least that's what Paul points to. That's what the apostle applauds the Romans for at the end of verse 14. That they have this knowledge flowing in and therefore they're able to instruct one another. Filled in to flow out the word for instruct is the same root word for another word, counsel. See the connection now? Instruction. Counsel is knowledge applied. It is wisdom shared. And if you've been at Lighthouse, you know this is our word. We are very big on biblical counseling, and rightly so. But listen, counseling is not a skill reserved for professionals or for the spiritually advanced. It is the responsibility of every single Christian. Every single Christian in this room. If you were with us, you recall during the Q&A panel we had a few weeks ago, it was made up of a variety of people. And aside from one, May, our staff counselor, it's not like the panelists had degrees from Bible colleges or they worked vocationally for the church. But why were they adept? Why did they have the skill in answering questions and providing counsel on serving? Well, it's very simple. Because they have studied themselves. They have immersed themselves in the scriptures, applying it in their own lives so that they have insight to impart for ours. They're not super Christians, just normal believers who strive to do what we're all called to do in ministry, to be growing in knowledge and counseling one another. That's a simple definition and measurement for ministry. Are you maturing in the faith and then helping others to do the same? We don't have to overcomplicate it. Verse 14 is a fitting benchmark. I mean, can this description be said of you, of us here at Praxis? You know, if a visitor showed up to our worship service, and this is not a hypothetical, this happens every week. But if a visitor came, heard our chit chat, the advice we're giving to one another, if they participated in our events, would they draw the same conclusion that Paul does about the Romans? Would we be worthy? Would we merit such praise? That we are people marked by goodness, full of knowledge, able to instruct one another. It's fine to have a good time, to enjoy the company of others, to munch on some snacks after, but genuine Christian Genuine Christian fellowship shouldn't stay there, right? We're not some social club. We have been called out by God, a community of faith on mission to minister to one another. Now I know at this point, I'm in danger of preaching to the choir. Most of you already know this stuff. It ain't anything new. But when it comes to ministry, in my opinion, innovation is often overrated. Of course, let's be strategic, even clever, creative to minister effectively, but it's not like we're trying to reinvent the wheel. Paul reminds the Romans of this in verse 15. He continues to say, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. 
You see, the apostle understands our propensity for novelty, what's exciting. We're suckers for cutting edge tech, whether it's toying with AI or waiting to see what Apple will, will release next. And we can share the same sentiment when it comes to ministry. Learn new theology, sing the latest hymn. That must be the key to unlocking Christian growth, right? It has to be something novel and exciting. But Paul mentions he has labored for over 15 chapters, just hovering around the good old gospel, a story as ancient as time. But listen, that's wisdom. The apostle's not duped by what's flashy because it can be precisely that a flash in the pan. No, we hold fast to what has held up across the ages. This was something I really had to learn when I first got into ministry. You know, I was young, zealous, kind of like many of you, and I was ready to shock and change the world. And I thought it was my job as the preacher to drop truth bombs and blow everyone's minds with these incredible insights about a particular passage. So you could understand why after a sermon, I was devastated. I hated hearing from other people saying, good reminder. Because I thought, I assume I failed if I was telling people something that they had already known. Now, if someone learns something new, that's great. That's bound to happen. But over the years, I've gained greater perspective. The aim of ministry isn't necessarily to teach or learn something new. It's to remember. It's to remember and remind others of what is ultimately important, to center ourselves on what's indispensable. Let me illustrate. Yeah, as a father, I'll tell my kids pretty much daily that I love them. Now, do I do this because I'm afraid they've suffered amnesia and forgotten who I am? No, it's nothing revolutionary. I tell them to remind them so that they live their day secure and comforted by my affection. And regardless of what they encounter throughout the day, nothing, nothing will change that fact. I want them to live in that reality. Dad loves me until it becomes the enveloping lens by which they see and live and experience everything else. Paul is fixing our sights. Don't get caught up in the latest trend or ministry fad. Don't depart from what's essential and important, the gospel. The gospel is not good news you learn once and then you move on from. You never graduate from the good news. The gospel, you see, is living in God's love. It is the reality the enveloping lens by which we see and experience everything else, ministry included. We may search for fresh ways to say or understand something, but realize it's because we're still clinging, returning, repeating what's tried and true. As R. Kent Hughes said, one of the greatest needs of Christian is not to believe more and better things, but to believe what we already believe. 
the measure of ministry is not in merely advanced theology or fancy outreach event. The measure of ministry is being reminded and boldly reminding others of Jesus Christ so that together as a community, we live by faith boldly. This is how the apostle condenses it in verse 18, if you just skip ahead. Paul puts his measuring rod for ministry in layman terms. His standard for success, not a mega church, not millions in the bank, it's rather mundane and ordinary. Do you see it in the text? Obedience. Obedience. Use that as a yardstick for ministry. That after it's all been said and done, I just want to be an influence where people are more inclined to obey Jesus with me in their life than without. When ministry is framed like that, it reorients how we measure success. It's not by size, by appearance, excitement, but simply how much others are quickened to obey God and his word. So practice, measure your ministry, your level of influence. Does it line up with Paul's paradigm? Does it match this standard? Having established what we should be shooting for as Christians, the apostle now discloses how we get there. Our second heading is the method of ministry. The method of ministry. We continue in verse 15, he writes, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. First, Paul narrows in on a proper approach to our method, a particular mindset we're supposed to adopt in ministry. The apostle evokes temple imagery through key words and phrases like priestly service, offering, acceptable. In fact, the word for minister is rather unique. It's not the typical word for servant. It's the word like turgon, which we might be familiar when we hear English equivalents. Liturgical, liturgy. It's a ritual, a ceremony for public worship. Paul is teleporting us back to books like Leviticus, our favorite, right? Where we're ushered before the tabernacle, the temple. If you've studied this book, Paul's done this already in the book of Romans. Romans 12, one and two, this pivotal seminal verse transitioning how we respond to the gospel by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. But notice the shift now in chapter 15. In Romans 12, 1 to 2, we're charged to offer ourselves in worship. Here in Romans 15, verse 16, we're to offer others in worship. Think about that. Is that what you picture when you think of ministry? That there's a weightiness this visual of priestly garb and strict 
temple practice, that in the place of burnt animals and spilt blood, you render worship to God by bringing, surprise, the consecrated lives of your brothers and sisters here at practice, here at Lighthouse. Paul wants us to see our ministry with new eyes. You are more than an employee at the office. We are more than teammates on the court, roommates sharing a townhouse, or just people part of the same fellowship group. We are priests, responsible for presenting each other holy and blameless before God. One pastor noted, if only we could see our service as such, our lives would be radically transformed. A pie baked for a neighbor becomes an offering to God. A child held and loved is a liturgy, a coworker treated with dignity, a beatitude. The gospel shared is a song in heaven's courts, a Sunday school class well taught, a fragrance to God. These are beautiful thoughts. Even better, they are true. This sacred view of life was a primary characteristic of the missionary heart of the apostle Paul, end quote. You see, what needs to change for most of us is not what we possess, but how we perceive. Let me say that again. What needs to change for most of us is not what we possess, but how we perceive what we possess. We don't need more things per se. We need a new approach to old things. Because you read in the Old Testament, you come across things like holy hands, holy water, a holy place, and you might conclude there's something magical, special about these objects. Like maybe the hands glowed or or the water was crystal clear or the building was pristine and perfect. But there wasn't anything supernatural or peculiar about these things. What made them holy were they were dedicated and used for holy purposes. Normal hands were made holy when devoted to God's work. Normal water and buildings were made holy when committed to God's worship. And the same principle applies and is in effect today. Ministry is still about redeeming ordinary things before holy purposes for God's purpose. So take stock of what you have and consider how you might devote them, dedicate them to the Lord, using them to build up your brother or sister in Christ. Perhaps you can set aside time to grab a meal with a friend, to bear their burdens, to pray for them, to encourage them to press on in the faith. Perhaps you can consecrate some money to support a missionary or to bless someone with a generous gift. As a priest, how might you leverage and devote a holy education, a holy hobby, a holy popularity, a holy kitchen to minister to others in worship of God? we're to adopt a particular mindset. Now this ministry is not something we brute force and attempt on our own. 
our method of ministry not only requires a particular mindset, but a particular might. Glance back at the end of verse 15. Paul says, he confesses, because of the grace given me by God. So never forget, don't confuse, ministry is a privilege. We are not entitled to this. It is entrusted to us as a grace. And when we realize our mission is a given one, we exercise humility. Because this is from God, by God, and for God. Paul testifies of this in verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. The juxtaposition should be startling, right? Paul can be so bold to boast, even brag about his work. The apostle is certainly a man of integrity that by his words and deeds at the end of verse 18, both in his lips and his life, he has been an example, a faithful model in ministry to nurture, to encourage the Gentiles' obedience, their faith. But before you assume Paul is just tooting his own horn, he qualifies. He says in verse 18, ministry is only possible in Christ Jesus, and it's because of what Christ has accomplished through him. The apostle raises our gaze to the source in verse 19. By the power, so yes, by by his words and deeds, but ultimately by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Signs and wonders. You might be familiar with that refrain in the Exodus account in the 10 plagues, right? Water to blood, frogs, gnats, Flies, dead livestock, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh, his magicians can mimic, they can keep up in the beginning, but they're soon left in the dust by plague number three. But it's like Paul, or like Paul, it's through Moses and Aaron, God performs signs and wonders. Why? To make the message unmistakable. God's might is not like Pharaoh's. His power is unparalleled. And centuries later, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Jesus arrives on scene, performing what? Signs and wonders to demonstrate that he is capable of working the greatest miracle, saving us from our sins. And the message is unmistakable. It booms loud and clear. The source of strength is in Christ. Jesus' might is not like man's. His power is divine by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this same spirit not only saves sinners, but sanctifies them. The Holy Spirit can even take Christians and through them, encourage other Christians to greater obedience. It's remarkable. These are the stages of ministry that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he first saves you. Then he sanctifies you, which means he makes you become more and more like Christ. And then he sanctifies others through you. So how does God's might affect our attitude 
in ministry. Well, I would argue it should produce this paradox we see in the Apostle Paul. It should cultivate a humble confidence, a humble confidence in God, that when we minister, we should be humbled to realize it's not because we're wise and strong that we have it all together. God does. We're bound to make mistakes. We say a foolish word. I don't know, sometimes we even lose our temper. We need the very grace we're seeking to impart, and therefore we are humble when we minister. And yet, at the same time, we should be confident because God is wise and strong. He has it all together. His power is not hindered by our foolishness, our weakness, our mistakes. No, his power shines through them when he takes our feeble efforts, when he takes our impatience, our botched counsel, and he still, miracle upon miracle, he still changes hearts, ours and those around us. And therefore, we are confident as we minister. Humbled to be an instrument, confident because almighty God wields the instrument. And so in ministry, we can echo the early church father, Ignatius, who said, pray, pray as if everything depends on God and then work as if everything depends on you. Humble confidence. Pursue the people in your small group as if it rests all on your shoulders, yet knowing God is the good shepherd who will not allow any of his sheep to be snatched from his hand. Help others work out their salvation, certain that God will bring to completion the work he began. And then we rejoice and render glory to God when we see the evidences of grace, because the one who supplies the power receives the praise. Lastly, we take a peek at the motivation of ministry. The motivation of ministry. Continuing on in verse 19, Paul writes in the second half, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Uh, Paul talks big, right? I mean, just feel the magnitude of his words. He claims from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is from Israel to the Greek peninsula, an area spanning over a thousand miles. That's approximately the same distance as from here to Portland. The apostle is claiming full responsibility for the ministry of the gospel. That's audacious, pretty brash. But what is Paul talking about? Is he announcing that he's done it all, everything possible, and that there's nothing left for other Christians to do in these regions? No, we only need to keep reading, verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So there it is, Christ has been named, a foundation has been laid. Paul has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel, not in preaching particularly to every human being in that area, but in getting the ball rolling. He's planted churches, 
scattered them in key cities that will carry on the mission. Now, the apostle isn't diminishing the need to build up established churches. He's not putting down those who stay and serve the local body. Otherwise, I would be offended, right? Paul's ambition is not a hard and fast rule. It's a personal conviction, a stewardship. Assessing his own personality, his position, skill set, Paul is persuaded that the best usage of his ministry is to be on the front lines, to be a pioneer in preaching the gospel where people haven't heard about Jesus Christ. The takeaway is not to pit these two options as diametrically opposed or as mutually exclusive, whether you should play more of a support role at your home church or be on the front lines in advancing the good news. The takeaway is that the motivation in ministry, whatever shape or form it takes, is the same. It is to proclaim Christ. You know, Paul could have stuck to what's cushy and easy but comforts take a back seat to conviction. And the mission is more significant than the man. I mean, it's called ministry. That at the end of the day, our motivation isn't what we want, but what God wants. Practice, check your heart. Can you honestly say this about your desire? Or is there at least movement in that direction? We don't even have to tackle and address church planting. But what about your ministry literally here at Lighthouse, at Praxis? Do you talk to the same people over and over again? Do you serve only when and where it's convenient and fun? Do you participate only when it makes much of you, when there's something for you Listen, that's not ministry. That's selfishness. How about this one? And I'm sure to step on some toes here, but I'm not a fool, okay? I may be old, but I'm not completely unaware and stupid. I know some of the appeal of praxis and coming is not the stellar, world-renowned teaching. Okay, I get that. You guys come because our numbers have ballooned. We're a big group. And praxis for some, seems like a good place to meet someone of the opposite gender. Yes, we're going to go there. Now, as a disclaimer, I'm not against dating. It should happen in the church. But it, listen, if we're always on mission as Christians, then our motivation should ultimately be to minister, whether the relationship is platonic or romantic. Our primary concern is not to find a boyfriend or girlfriend, but to proclaim Christ. And if this be true, it changes even the dating dynamic. You ought to be considerate, especially if a sister or brother is brand new, to give them enough space to form solid, good friendships, to get plugged into community of faith without having to worry about any sort of weirdness, okay? Don't be a vulture. Don't be strange. It's just got real in here. But you ought to be mindful as well of your interactions. 
cautious of how forward you are, how you might come off, how you might respond to rejection or how you might reject someone else's advances. Bottom line, you should care more about others and Jesus Christ than your own interests because that's what ministry is about. That's at the heartbeat, the center point of being a Christian. It's when your presence and participation is not contingent solely on what you can gain out of praxis or the church, but how you can magnify Jesus Christ. It's when you're pushed out of your comfort zone to serve. It's when others might be upset or bristle at your godly counsel or admonition, but you do it anyway out of love for them, not for yourself. But listen, that's what drives genuine ministry when the decisive factor is not me, but God, the gospel, and others. This is the motivation for everything. This is motivation for ministry, whether you support or go. The harvest is plentiful. The labors are either sent to work, or they stay to work, or they sin by avoiding the work. Praxis, everyone's on mission. The question is, are you on the right one? Are you on the right one? Or have you been sidetracked by a mission solely to find friends or a romantic relationship? A mission to be satisfied and stable in career? A mission to build up your reputation or your bank account? Paul rehearses what compels him to minister And it's right there in verse 21. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will finally understand. In this last verse, Paul quotes from a very important section of scripture in Isaiah 52. You need to turn there because I want you to see it for yourself. Isaiah 52 He quotes from verses, or Isaiah 52, he quotes from verse 15, but we'll start reading beginning in verse 13. Isaiah 52, this is prophecy of old. When the prophet Isaiah writes, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. I gather you can kind of see who this foretells of. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So there it is. Paul is quoting Isaiah 52 this epic passage, the fourth, uh, the fourth servant song, this grand prophecy describing God's coming Messiah, an anointed one, a promised one, the suffering servant who would arrive to ransom and redeem sinners through his death. And we read on in our Bibles into the New Testament to dis- discover and marvel that Jesus Christ is this suffering servant. He is the God-man on mission, embracing his ministry to suffer on behalf of sinners. And he serves us dying on a cross, paying the penalty of sin to restore us back to God. 
and thereby ransoming, redeeming our lives and then redeploying them for his glorious purpose. And this offer of salvation, this news is so glorious and good, it can't be kept under wraps. It must be heralded so that those who have not been told will see, so that those who have not heard will understand the grace of God. The gospel is worthy of our lives, that our sole ambition would line up with God's, to call sinners to repentance and faith. Our job, beloved, is to put the message in people's ears and allow God to take it to the heart. Can I be so bold, so straightforward as to say some of you should consider church planting or being part of one? Maybe you've got that entrepreneurial bent or a magnetic personality, or you're just low maintenance, right? And you don't need much. You could be a huge asset to a church plant. I'm not saying you automatically have to be down and those are the only requirements. Obviously, be a Christian, be godly. But perhaps, perhaps God has wired you in such a way that you can weather the storm. You can flourish in a difficult context and you choose to for the sake of the spread of the gospel. Or maybe you have the resources to take some risks for the cause of Christ. Maybe you're in a season of life where you don't have people depending upon you, where you're afforded many freedoms and flexibilities to spend yourself that others might see and know Jesus Christ. I mean, what are we after here at Praxis? Is it just transfer growth? You know, sheep from one pen to another, church to church? Or do we take seriously what the Bible teaches us? that the harvest is plentiful and the labors are few, that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. When David Livingston volunteered as a missionary with the London Missionary Society and they asked him where he wanted to go, you know what he replied? He said, Anywhere, anywhere, so long as it is forward. Now, if this might be something you're interested in, come talk to me. We're actually putting together a group at Lighthouse to attend a cross-con, a missions conference that we might study the word and stir our hearts for the lost. But whether you're involved in the grassroots ministry of church planting, or just being faithful and a pillar in ministering in an established congregation like at Lighthouse. Listen, the motivation is the same. It may play out differently in our lives, but for the Christian, there is no greater mission and motivation than proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Praxis, what will this look like for you? It doesn't necessarily have to be in a foreign land, in a language you don't know. What will it look like for you in your cubicle or on Zoom meeting, if you were motivated to tell others about the gospel, what will it look like in your wallet and credit card statements if you utilize earthly treasure to uncover the treasure hidden in the field? 
What will it look like in your small group conversations if you treated the time not as an hour to kill before snacks, but a divine opportunity, appointment to stoke the faith of others? The application may vary from person to person, but something should change, right? Our lives should be different because when you're on mission, it defines how you live. We've examined the measure, the method, and the motivation. Ministry has been entrusted to each one of you. Beloved, what will you do with it? Let's pray. God, what a sobering truth to realize that heaven and hell hang in the balance of what people do with your son. And we have good news, the precious gift of Jesus Christ. How foolish we are to squander the opportunity to tell others, loved ones and those perishing in their sins of the savior who has come who has died, that they may have life in him. Lord, I pray that you would kindle within us a passion for your name, that you would convict us, Lord, of ways in which we have been distracted, ways in which we have unwisely handled what you have entrusted to us. Lord, we pray for forgiveness. We also pray for grace, for power, your power, that you might help us see our lives with a renewed sense of purpose, that we would leverage all that you've given to us, all that we have at our disposal to showcase the infinite worth of your son, that he is our greatest treasure. May that be evident in how we approach our careers, how we talk to one another, how we serve and love and care for the body here at Praxis. Use your word and bless us, even as we go into small groups, that we would see this as a way in which we can minister to each other. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.